But it is always such a wonderful and awesome experience to be able to worship God together. Because the truth is, worship, worship tells a lot about who you are. What you worship, how you worship. And uh, there's something that's really kind of cool to think about, is that worship is a uniquely human experience. Worship is a uniquely human experience. I don't know if we have any Nature Channel, Animal Planet, anybody watch any of those shows, enjoys watching the critters do crazy things. You know, um, animals don't worship. So like when you see the big iceberg and the penguins, you know, diving into the ocean, there's no seal there clapping its fins. You good job. You know, the seal from France gives a 7.5. You know, that was a triple gainer with, you know, whatever they call it. Um, You've seen the, um, the pictures of the giant, huge grizzly bears in Alaska. And I love the way um, Paul Tripp talks about this. He says, you know, you don't see a color commentator when the salmon are swimming and the bear like casually reaches down and brings out like a 40-pound salmon. You know, it's like, wow, Big Brown's having an a, you know, extraordinary season. You know, he's reeling that thing in and, you know, then he takes two bites of it and throws it to the side. Animals don't worship. We are the only beings in creation that have the opportunity to worship God. And to say, you know, most of the time we think we're pretty big stuff, but worship is an opportunity for us to realize that you are God, I am not. And so we're doing something that um, the Bible says if we don't do it, the rocks will cry out. But we're the only people in uh, consciously that have the opportunity to worship God because worship is a a uniquely human experience. And so we're going to talk about worship today in the context of Nehemiah chapter 11 and 12. If um, this is your first Sunday with us, we have been journeying uh, for six weeks or so through uh, the book of Nehemiah, and uh, we're rapidly coming to a close next week uh, in Nehemiah 13. But today we'll be in chapters 11 and 12, because now that Nehemiah has rebuilt the walls, and now that he has reformed and revived people's hearts, he's ready to bring his project to completion. And so all the things that Nehemiah has been working for, they get tied up with a nice, neat little bow, Today And the way that he ties all of this up is not with some kind of civic ceremony with a ribbon cutting. You know, the mayor comes and they cut the ribbon. He, he concludes the whole religious reform and the construction project with a great big worship service. And that's appropriate. And we'll see uh, a little bit more about that here this morning. If you're following along, there's two things for you. There's a listening guide, kind of an outline in your uh, worship bulletin. Uh, your worship folder, and if you um, don't have your own copy of the scriptures, the Black Pew Bible in front of you, page 350, is where we're going to start off. And we're going to cover a lot of ground here in Nehemiah 11 and 12. We're just going to look at a few verses in particular that will kind of summarize where we're going. And the first thing that we're going to see is that now that the walls are built, Nehemiah seeks to repopulate the city. We're told something very interesting in Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 4, that the walls are built, the, the construction project around the city is done, but the city is basically desolate. And listen, let me ask you just a real simple question. Is God glorified by a, more by a desolate city or by a full city? Can you turn it this way? Is God glorified by an empty church or a full church? Full church. Now, listen, we've got some, especially on the front row, because you all happen to be Baptists, and so we have some room for some extra guests here. Some of you probably could scoot in just a little bit more, and we've got some extra space. But wouldn't it be awesome to be a part of a church that is so concerned about the gospel that some of you had to stand in the back? Wouldn't it be an incredible privilege to have to give up your seat for someone else to worship God and hear the gospel? 
That's a great thing. And so that's what Nehemiah wants. He wants the city of God to be populated. And we see that in Nehemiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Listen to what the scripture says. Now the leaders of the people stayed in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots for one out of ten to come and live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the other nine-tenths remained in their towns. And the people praised all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Nehemiah is trying to repopulate the city. And it says that one of the ways that he needs to do this, the leaders are there. I mean, obviously, the city leaders have to be in the city to lead the city. But it is uh, people with the desolation of the wall, destruction of the city, people were living in the outlying villages. And so it says that they cast lots. They kind of drew straws to figure out who's going to live in the city. And so there's a variety of ways to kind of understand the casting lots. Was this coercion? Nobody wanted to live in the city. And so they had to kind of draw straws to do it. Was it that everybody was willing to live in the city and they had to draw straws because there was only so much space? Or is it saying that they drew lots and the people who were willing to relocate were voluntarily willing to go? I mean, they drew the short straw, but they were glad to do it. We don't know. We don't know. We do know what it says in verse 2, that all the people praised all the men who volunteered to live in the city. There was a willing spirit. And so one of the things that happens, these people are doing something that's not necessarily in their best interest. When you talk about the ancient Near East, you're talking about a predominantly agrarian society. So in order to do agrarian society well, you need land. What's the one thing you don't have when you live in the city? Land. And so if you live in the city and your acreage is out there, where, what is happening? You are separated from the property that you own, which means all kinds of funny stuff can happen when the cats away, the mouse will play. And so um, also, when you think about the way things happen, if you live on a farm and a marauding army happens to be passing through, uh, they, unless you have like a really big farm, they're probably not going to mess with you. You're probably okay. Because what? All the riches, all the money, all the wealth is where? In the bank, in the city. You know, it's collected there. That's why they have the walls up. They're guarding precious things. And so by m- moving into the city, they were doing some things that weren't necessarily in their best interest, but they really weren't concerned about their best interests, were they? They were willing to move because the glory of God was at stake. And this is God's holy city and nobody lives there? What does that communicate about God? What happens when you walk into a church and the people who are there look like they're not even happy to be there? It's a problem. And so Nehemiah wants to repopulate the city. And we say something beautiful here. This is a very ancient and pre-Christian Christ-likeness. People are willing to do what is not in their best interest to advance the kingdom of God. You know what that sounds like? Jesus. Willing to do what is not in his best interest, the Father, not as I will, but as you will. This advances the kingdom, so I'm willing to do it even though it's not pleasant and maybe I don't see a particular payoff. And so I just ask a question. In Jerusalem, they praised all the people who were willing to do what was not in their best interest for the advancement of the kingdom. Who would be the people that we would praise like that today? Who would be on our list? Who would be in our hall of fame? To say, you know what? Look at that guy. He's doing something that's not in his best interest, but he's doing this because this is a tangible way for him to express his love for God. Now, I've got two different points of application. Um, In the first service, uh, which is predominantly an uh, an older crowd, I said one of the peoples that they need to be proud of is our young people. You know, there's, there's a really strange way that our culture has changed. And I don't know, young people, if you can appreciate the culture that our older folks have grown up, And I don't think our older people appreciate the culture that our younger people have grown up. Because, listen, if you're over 50, 60, 70, 
Um, there's a lot of things to be proud about about our country. You know, we rid the world of communism and fascism and all these bad things. And we were this kind of like second Jerusalem. God had blessed America and we were blessing the entire world. That's the worldview and that's the perspective that our older folks have about our country. So for young people, patriotism is a really not a good deal. Because for our older people, their perspective on our country is, man, God has really blessed us and we've been able to bless everybody. We are this holy Jerusalem kind of times two. For our young people who have grown up where abortion is legal and abuse is all over the place and divorce is rampant, we're not holy Jerusalem. We're the adulterating Babylon. That's what our country is. And so just on that really simple issue, our older generation and our younger generation has a very different perspective on who our country is. And so here's why I said I think young people should be um, some of the heroes is back in the day when your grandparents joined the church, there was nothing countercultural about that. It was expected. As a matter of fact, you might not get a job if you didn't go to church. Because, you know, if you want to sell real estate, you've got to be a member at so-and-so Baptist church. You know what has changed in our culture? You might lose your job if you're a believer. And so my plea with our older folks is to understand our culture has changed so much that when young people identify with the church, <laughs> praise God. Because they have to swim against a culture in a current that is difficult. Do you know who you guys need to be thankful for? Who are the people you need to praise, like the people in Jerusalem praise? It's the people whose shoulders you get to build upon. Listen, every single one of us are glad we got air conditioning, glad we got heat, glad we got this building, and not a single one of you built this building. People who came before you did it. They've set good examples. These are people who have served in capacity, leadership capacities at our church for 50 and 60 years. They, they have the opportunity to be married 60 and 70 years together. And they've, they've cut such a good example for us to appreciate. In our, in our day and age, we've created this class war between old people and young people. And it's not right. It's not right. And so when we think about people who have done things that are not in their best interest for the advancement of the kingdom, don't pat yourself on the back. Look at people that have come before you that have tried to make your life easier and tried to set an example of the right way to go. A lot of things that are different, things that are important as well. And we have the opportunity to stand upon the shoulders of giants. So we see Nehemiah's desire to repopulate the city. Um, while Nehemiah would have never spoken about this in terms of evangelism, the, the, the kind of um, contemporary application for us, how do we populate the city of God? It's not necessarily by relocation. It's by evangelism. And so... Make it your point to work your way out of your seat. Make it your point to be the first person who's willing to give up your seat, not so you can stay home and sleep in on Sunday or get a jump on your fantasy football league, but to model that kind of sacrifice instead of going, you're sitting in my pew, to go, I want you to sit in my pew because I want to see our church honor God. In the way. And it would just be awesome if the way that we sing, the way that we worship it became so obvious that we were so in love with God that they may not like the way we dress, they may not like the songs that we sing, that they particularly not care for the sermon, but they know who reigns in our hearts supreme because of the way that we worship. Number two, Nehemiah organizes the dedication of the walls. And we see this uh, towards the end of chapter 12. We'll look at a couple verses here. Uh, beginning in verse uh, 27, verses 30 and 31, and verse 38. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. They sent for the Levites wherever they lived and brought them to Jerusalem to celebrate the joyous dedication with thanksgiving 
uh, and singing, accompanied by the cymbals, the harps, and the lyre. Verse 30, after the priests and Levites had purified themselves, they purified the people, the gates, and the walls. And then I brought the leaders of Judah up on top of the wall, and I appointed two large choirs, two processions, to give thanks. One went to the right on the wall, and verse 38 says the other went left on the wall. Now here's the thing that's really cool about this. If you go back to Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 3, Tobiah, who is one of the Arabs that doesn't like what's happening in Jerusalem, he comes up with this little mocking chant. He says, oh, those Jews... That little wall that they're building, if a fox jumps up on it, it's going to crumble right down. Well, looky here. What's happening? He didn't say it's just two choirs. He didn't say it's one choir. He didn't say it's a, one large choir. He said it's two great choirs. And what has he done? He has put them up on the wall. <laughs> if you can get up on the wall with a bunch of other people, I mean, you remember how the wall of Jericho fell down? They like sang and blew horns and walked, walked around it. I'd be like, I don't know about a choir up on the wall, y'all. That may not be the smartest. That's not OSHA approved. But they get up and they start at the southwest corner. And one choir goes this way, one choir goes this way. And guess where they meet? At the temple. Because now what we begin to see is as these two choirs sing their praises, enveloping the entire city of God. They're surrounded by praise. It's noisy, it's celebrative, it's festive, it's joyful. When they march to the temple, this is a really special occasion. They're dedicating the walls, and as they're marching to the temple, it means something because the temple occupies a central place in their hearts now because they've been renewed in their worship of God. It's not just a thing that they're going to. It is appropriate that they go to the temple because the two motives, mo- motifs, the two themes that have reigned supreme in Nehemiah, the walls and the worship, join together in this worship service. Thank God. Don't pat ourselves on the back. Thank God that the walls have been done. Thank God that he's allowed us to worship the right way. And so he talks about how they sang. They sang with gladness and thanksgiving. They didn't, you know, sing, Great is the Lord. They sang with joy. They sang with thanksgiving. They sang with variety, cymbals and harps and lyres, with hymns, with songs, whatever that means. They purified themselves. Anybody have a hectic time coming to church this morning? Why does that always seem to happen on Sunday morning? Like, you know, you go out and now you've got a flat tire. Dog, got it. Your kids were perfect yesterday, but they woke up and they're demon-possessed this morning. <laughs> Sweet Jesus, what happened? You know? And then you, you come to church and, like, you know, it happens. You're fighting in the car on the way here, and you open the door. Once you get on the church, probably you're like, hey, brother, prayed for you this week. Liar. You know, don't even do it. How do, you, how do you prepare yourself for worship? It says that the Levites, they kind of gathered them from the towns where they were, and it says they purified themselves. But they didn't stop there. They purified the gates and the doors. So how, who wants to show up for worship early next week to purify our doors, get them ready for worship? We think the only thing we have to do to be ready for worship is have a greeter back there to open the door. Does that purify the doors? Well, maybe in some sense. We're prepared for guests. We're prepared to welcome people. What do you do to prepare? They purified themselves. And before we get to our third point, it's important for us to talk a little bit about worship because worship is a big thing. We have been talking through this Nehemiah series. We've used, we've used the Nehemiah series kind of as a, a tool to talk about our, our vision. And um, you're going to hear this until you, you've, you got it, until like it's memorized, boom, boom, boom. We talk about our vision to be a church that um, glorifies God, by building disciples, by building strong families where everyone is encouraged to put Christ first. Truth is, you may not have a family. You might be single, but you know what? You can be a part of the family of 
God. And we want you. And we want you. And so when we talk about our vision and our mission to build strong families, we actually have a build strong strategy. We want to be, believe together in worship. Understand in groups. Invest our time, talent, and treasures. Live out the gospel and depend upon one another as a family. And so worship is extraordinarily important for us. It's a non-negotiable. And so the very first thing here for some points that we want to clarify is, uh, number one, that worship must be a clear priority. Here's what I love in this passage. Um, How do we know that worship was a priority? You've got to remember, the Old Testament is different because God was the king and it was a theonomy, not a democracy. God ruled, and so that there was a holy city. There are no holy cities nowadays. Every city belongs to the Lord. But Jerusalem was the holy city in the Old Testament. And so what happens in the holy city is important because it reflects upon God. So desolate city, puny God. And so vibrant city, strong God. And so they want to uh, make worship a priority by rearranging people's geography. What would you do if we said, uh, to be a member at Northside Baptist Church, you need to live within walking distance of the church? So you all need to sell your house because we want this part of Rock Hill to be so saturated with the gospel that all of you need to live right here. It's easy for you to get to church, easy for you to depend upon one another, and you just need to liquidate your assets, get rid of your property, and you need to live right here. How many people would show up for church next week? Is God allowed to rearrange your geography? He did for these people. And here's the thing. College students, here's, here's something you're going to face here in a couple of years. And, and everyone who's out of college, they already know this. You, you, what happens when you graduate from college? You move back home with mom and dad. No, 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 no. That's not, that's, that's not what we want. You look for a job. And you know what? There's a chance that you may not be able to find a job in Rock Hill. So that means you have to move. So what's the thought process? You get a job with whoever will hire you. And so you may move to Timbuktu. And then what do you need when you move to take a job? You need a place to live. And so you, wh- where are you going to find a place to live? Some place that's convenient to your job. Whatever is the nicest thing that you can afford that's convenient to your work. And then what's something else that you know? Oh, yeah, um, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, a hundredth down the list, you need a church. And then what happens when you start looking for a church? This is just a, a truism. You will never find a church like your home church. It's not going to happen. And you know what? I wish, I wish I could say with like boldness, it's really easy to find a good church. It's not. And so you, 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 you have gotten a job, you have bought a house, you're looking for a church, and how long is that going to take you? Six months? Three months? A year? And then when you finally find the church that you feel like God wants you to be a part of, and it's 45 minutes away, now where you live is an obstacle to you being intimately involved in the life of that church. What if when you graduate, you find the church that you want to be a part of, you find a job that allows you to earn a living and you live someplace that your involvement in a church is not an excuse because of where you live. So college students, I'm trying to turn the pyramid upside down and say, think church first. You know, because what's more important, church or job? You may need to answer that question really clearly because we're told that your job is what's most important because the, the dollar is sovereign, not God. Are you willing to take a pay cut to be at a church that's going to help you live faithfully for God? I am. It's important. Those of you that have already kind of made this decision a long time ago, okay? Let me just kind of ask the question in retrospect. When you bought the house that you bought, was the very first thought in your mind glorifying and being obedient to God or being convenient for yourself? Now, things may have worked out in spite of yourself. 
you, you're involved in the church that you love and that is encouraging you, and it's convenient. I'm not saying you have to do what is inconvenient. What I'm saying is don't make a decision that makes it harder for you to be involved in the family of God. That's the point. Worship must be a clear priority. And you know, another thing is we cannot glorify God without worshiping him. Because the truth is everybody worships something. Christians just know who they worship. Non-Christians don't really know. They worship. I mean, we've already said we're hardwired to worship. As a matter of fact, yesterday was the largest religious event ever in the history of our nation. It's called College Football Saturday. So we're going to talk about that in a second, too. Worship has to be a clear priority. I love the way Psalm 34.3 talks about worship. It's a great summary. Psalm 34.3, right in the middle of your bulletin, says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. The second thing we see kind of related to this verse is that the object of worship in Psalm 34, but also in Nehemiah's time, the object of worship is the Lord. And in our modern day and age, we, we live in such an age where everything is customized. I mean, you can get the color on the, of the case on your cell phone that you want. You can get it to play whatever tune that you want for a ringtone. You can get all kinds of customized options for your vehicle. You can do all kinds of crazy things at your home. And in our day and age of customization, we slip into talking like worship is about us and our tastes and our preferences. And we forget that worship is not about us. It is about God. And if it's ever not, then it's idolatry. It's idolatry. It is not about you. Worship, at its heart, should seek to please God first and foremost. Number three, as we see both in Nehemiah and in Psalm 34, worship requires someone to initiate leadership. I love this. He says, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Nobody else is worshiping, and then whoever me is is getting it started, and he says, hey, don't you want to be a part of it? The psalmist says, magnify the Lord with me. We haven't gotten there yet, but in verse 44, when it talks about people giving their tithes and their offerings, it says the reason they're glad to make great sacrifices is because they're rejoicing over the priests and the Levites who serve the Lord in the temple. And isn't it odd that if you go to like church staffing websites, the number one thing, number one staff position that we fight over is worship leaders. And yet here, they're rejoicing over the people that are leading them in worship. Number four, worship can be private. You can worship privately. You can, you can worship in the deer stand. You can worship on the lake. You can worship on the golf course. But worship properly flowers, comes to its full bloom when it is a communal activity. It means we're together. Psalm 34 says, let us exalt his name all by ourselves. It says, let us exalt his name together. And um, that's huge. We need to be together as God's people when we worship. Now, when we get together and worship, it's not always going to look the same. You know, um, it, it's kind of crazy. I don't know. Any, any Clemson fans here this morning? No? Okay, good. Um, Josh, I see that hand. We'll have an invitation here at the end. You can repent later on. <laughs> any South Carolina fans in the house? Oh, all right. A little more enthusiasm there. Listen, when we talk about worship um, and we talk about football, it's not a one-size-fits-all thing. And there are some people who think, well, you know, I'm a South Carolina fan. If you're a Clemson fan, then you can't really be a college football fan. Because, like, you have to, like, like my team and my players and everything else doesn't count. That's ridiculous, okay? But yet we do that in worship all the time. If you don't sing my songs my way, my style, then you're not faithful to God. And when we talk about worshiping together, 
Here's one of the things we have to understand. It's, kind of, it's an analogy. I'm going to read this quote because I, I just think it's, it's too good to miss out. And it's going to kind of come at this issue kind of around the corner and surprise you a little bit. But it's going to talk a little bit about language. And he says that worship is a common language spoken in many dialects. Imagine for a second, and I am not going to do accents because I will always sound like I'm Italian. So I'm um, not going to do it. Imagine... <laughs> Imagine a guy from the Bronx talking to a guy from Cleveland, talking to a girl from Mississippi, talking to a dude in California. They're all speaking English, we think. They're all speaking English, but you know what? It just sounds a little bit different, doesn't it? The guy from the Bronx, you're like, what is a ka? You know? Um, the girl from Mississippi, I did not know there were that many syllables in that word. You know, you just drew it right out. You know, we don't know what's going on with the, the, the dude in California, but everything's groovy, you know. I mean, it's what's going on. They are all different accents, but they are still speaking English in the same way as the church. We've got to look beyond the accents that we speak and recognize that we're all participating in a common language, the common activity of worship. So here's, here's what I need. Um, Oh, I got a cord here. Um, we've got a security team here at the church, which I am very grateful for. And so, um, security team, I need a little bit of help. And, and somebody here may, may want to nominate. Do you, are you, do you happen to be married to or related to an obnoxious college football fan? Anybody? Oh, no. You are not allowed to raise your hand. <laughs> well, hey, since she did that. You didn't know. <laughs> We're going to talk about sports and idolatry. And so I wanted to make sure that I kind of laid out. I'm there too. I get it. So is anybody married to an obnoxious college football fan? Anybody else? Emily. All right. Hey, security. Can I get you guys to do me a favor? Mr. Um, uh, Mr. Josh needs to join me up here, please. Josh, we're going to go to a college football game. You and I, man. We're going to have a lot of fun. <clears throat> Come on. Now, can, can, I, can I ask what team you cheer for? Uh, you know. Uh, I don't. South Carolina. You know. South Carolina. All right, have a seat right here. No, right here. Right here. We watch them hey, shh. I, I'm preaching, not you. Sit down. <clears throat> All right. Now, listen, there's a lot of things. When we talk about worship, there's a lot of things about worship we can learn from idol, idol worshipers. And you know, the truth is, when we talk about college football, and I'm just as guilty, I'm just as guilty as anybody else, it is, um, I'll put this on your sleeve so it doesn't get you. When we talk about college football, we really are talking about a worship service that happens. And it's a worship service for a variety of reasons. You know what we learn from college football fans? We learn that when you worship something, you talk about what you love. How many of you have um, found it easy no matter what the conversation is about, you can bring it about back to Clemson football. You know, there is a way that you are going to get Clemson football, or sorry, South Carolina football, into the conversation. And so, you know, you talk about what is important to you. No, 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 we're, we're working here. What size shoe do you wear, man? Oh, let's see here. So you, you talk about what you are interested in. There's another way that you can tell what somebody worships because you spend money on what you worship. So anybody have 
like a college-themed uh, lawn chair? Anybody have a college-themed um, cooler? Anybody who own um, those obnoxious fans that you put on your car and you drive around on game day? You know, so everybody, in case they don't know that you're a fan, they now know that you're a fan. Some people have a watch on too. <laughs> yeah, I have my UM watch on, thanks. So, so you talk about what you are interested in, you spend money on what you are interested in, and you even, well, let's fix the talking about what you're interested in. <laughs> now I'm ready to get into my sermon. I've got about 45 minutes of a couple points that I want to make. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. All right. You can just shake your head. Okay. Because, oh, wait. Let me get some more here. <laughs> um, when you think about watching a college football game, part of the thing that is fun about a college football game is being able to celebrate when something good happens. But what do you do? You stand up. Can you stand up for me? <laughs> you, he could probably break the tape. I didn't put him in that hard. But could you imagine trying to watch your team all by yourself and not even by yourself being able to... He, now, you can celebrate in his cranium, but he can't raise a hand. He can't stand up and jump. He can't shout. Because one of the things that we realize when it comes to secular worship, we like to be together with other people that like the same thing we do, and we like to kind of express it. And so, you know, the truth is when we think about, I'm going to let you out of here, and you're going to peel the rest of it off yourself. But would you, would you like, would it be fun to watch a college football game like this? Not being able to celebrate, not being able to jump, not being able to raise your hand? Yeah, you have to. You express what you worship sorry. You express, I think we're going to get you out of here. There we go. Thank you, Josh. Uh, a hand up. I got you. You're all right. <laughs> Don't put that in the tithe plate. We talk about what we love. We try to look like what we love. Some of you will never, ever get on the field for your team, but that doesn't stop you from customizing your jersey and putting your name on it. There is no, there is no jersey in the Clemson of the South Carolina locker, locker room with your name on it, but that doesn't stop you. You know, here's Davis for the Gamecocks, and you try to look like you fit on the team. You talk about them, you spend money, and you celebrate them. And I just wonder, why in the world have we made college football the son of our solar system when it's supposed to be God? I'm just as guilty. But when we talk about worship, we get people who say, you know, I can worship God all by myself on the golf course. I'm like, that is the most boring worship service. Golf is boring anyways. It's fun to play, but you watch it, it will cure your insomnia. And we get people who talk about worshiping God on a golf course, and they go, that's terrible. What encouragement do you get there? Now, listen, I understand the Holy Spirit's with you. God's omnipresent. I get that. I'm not denying any point of orthodoxy. How are you encouraged by the people's gifts? Where is their fellowship? How, how and who are you serving besides yourself? What, what kind of discipleship is happening when you're by yourself? We're supposed to be together as a family. That's the predominant metaphor that the New Testament uses for the church. And that doesn't mean you just show up for the family reunion once every 10 years. That means that you're actively engaged, doing what you're supposed to do as part of the family. And so worship properly flowers most beautifully and most fragrantly when it's done communally. Number five, worship, uh, in order to worship well, requires advanced preparation. We talked about this a little bit when we talk about um, 
how do you prepare for worship? Let me read some verses here. Uh, chapter 12, verses 43 through 44 and 47. <clears throat> it says this, On that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. The women and children also celebrated and Jerusalem's rejoicing was heard far away. Verse 44, On the same day men were placed in charge of the rooms that housed the supplies, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tents. The legally required portions for the priests and Levites were gathered from the village fields because Judah was grateful to the priests and Levites who were serving. Verse 47, So in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, all Israel contributed the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. They set aside daily portions for the Levites, and the Levites set aside daily portions for the descendants of Aaron. Then in chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, they read that in God's law, the Moabites and the Ammonites really have no part in the city of Jerusalem. And so they deport all the people who are not ethnically Jewish because they know that this is an issue of obedience to God and to be prepared for what they needed to do, this is what they needed to do. It requires advanced preparation. I love the way verse 43 talks about it. The word rejoice is used five times in that one verse. It might be a tradition, but don't let it be a tradition that's boring. Don't let it be a tradition that's joyless. They, they rejoice, and it says that they gave sacrifices. So when you say sacrifice, you already know, like, this costs you something. But then it doesn't say that they gave a sacrifice. It says they gave a great sacrifice, so that really cost them something. And it says that they rejoiced over the ability to make a great sacrifice. That's how they were prepared. Some of you don't even carry, like, cash or a credit card. Nothing. So, like, you can go, man, I, I want to give to God, but I got nothing. Sometimes it requires advanced preparation, and that's why we're glad we're making use of technology to try to make um, that kind of financial support easier. Verse 44, someone obviously did some Bible study because all these things that they're supposed to provide for, the contributions, the first fruit, the tents, are all things that were prescribed in the law, in the Torah. And so somebody did their Bible study, said, here's what we need to do. We need to put people in charge, and the gifts need to come in. Now, we know that Jerusalem at this time was going through a famine, so this was not the economically most prosperous time, and yet the temple was provided for. And in verse 47, did you hear the word that's repeated? It says, in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, all Israel contributed the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. They set aside daily portions for the Levites, and the Levites set aside daily portions for the descendants of Aaron. This was not a one-or-done sacrifice. This was a daily issue, and this brings us back to our, our third and final point. At this point, it really sounds like Nehemiah's done the wall, uh, the, the religion has been revived, worship has been restored, and they lived happily ever after. And by the time we get to chapter 13, verse 3, and we put the period at the end of the sentence, that's exactly what we get. Now, what we need to realize is the rest of chapter 13 is going to end on a different note. We'll hear about that next week. Your efforts at honoring God are never a one-and-done deal. You always have to fight for faithfulness. But at this point, this brings us back to our third and final point, that the people's worship was not most clearly demonstrated in their music. It was demonstrated in their obedience and their obedience was a daily issue not an hour on sunday but a daily 24 7 365 obedience that sought to put christ first in all things because here's the thing i don't know what it costs to raise a kid but i got four of them it's not cheap 
And honestly, if we didn't have kids, there's probably a lot of things that Marcy and I would be able to do that we can't do because we have kids. Can I get an amen from any parents out there? Kids aren't cheap. But y'all better be grateful. <clears throat> Here's the deal. When your heart's involved in the activity that you're engaged with, it's not a sacrifice at all. It's a sacrifice for you looking out, looking in, looking out in, into my life. It's not a sacrifice for me. Why? Because I love my kids. And I'm glad to do whatever I need to do. Wear jeans that are frayed at the bottom. Have a car that five years ago was in bad need of a paint job. To, you know, not patch the drywall hole in the wall that we need to patch. Because we want to take care of our kids. It's not a sacrifice. And in the same way, when we talk about church, there are some people that get this whole thing built up. That, yeah, I got to do this. I got to do that. And there is no got to when your heart is already there. And that's the kind of worship that we want to foster. We ask the question, do people know what team you cheer for? Are there people at your workplace that know more about your fandom than they know about your faithfulness to following God? That's not right. When you look at how you spend your money, do you spend a lot more money on swag than you do on service to God? You're, you're willing to, you know, get on the bad side with your boss to get time off for the game, but, you know, I can't come to church on Sunday because, you know, I've got to work. You didn't when you went to the football games. You found a way to make it work. And the question is, is the gospel, the story of God redeeming people through the death, the the sacrificial and atoning death of the Son, is it precious enough to you that you worship well? I think we do a good job. We could do better. There's always room to love God more. There is always room for our worship to spill over into spontaneous evangelism. There's always a chance for us to love our neighbor and to demonstrate our love for God by the way that we love our neighbor more. And that's the kind of church that we want to be. As we talk about building strong, it is important that we believe together in worship. And so this morning, if worship is something that you just do on the outside and it's not what you do on the inside, today is an opportunity for you to experience something you may have never experienced before. And that is worshiping God in spirit and truth. Because the Bible says that he seeks for worshipers, not just people who go through the motions and follow their traditions, but in their heart have a saving relationship with God and trusted him personally. And so today, if um, worship is more a tradition and a rote ritual for you, it doesn't have to be. You have the opportunity to worship with a kind of overflowing joy that God talks about in the book of Nehemiah. And if they can have that kind of joy and worship before Jesus even came, what in the world is our problem after we know what he has done for us? And so today, I pray that if you need to have conversations about reform to your worship practices, that you would do that, that you would catch us after the service and we could have that conversation. There's not enough time for us to sit down and talk during a song. And so we'll make an appointment with you and we'll be glad to have those conversations because we think worshiping God is the highest calling in our life. Pray with me, please. God, we admit that we are idolaters and that there are all kinds of ways in which we make things that really shouldn't be priorities, greater priorities than you. And so, God, we come before you and we ask that you forgive us. And God, we're grateful that because of the sacrifice of your son, that if we are truly repentant, that you have already granted the forgiveness to us. 
So God, even more than the um, grace of forgiveness, we ask you for the grace of restoring to us joy in our worship. Help us to love your Son. Help us to love your Spirit, to love your Word, to seek to know you more and to make you known more. God, may we not divide our lives up into here's my worship life and here's my outreach life and here's my evangelism life. Let it all just overflow out of a loving and gracious and thankful relationship that we have with you. So God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for demonstrating your love by sending your son to die for us. Thank you for giving us a new life that we can live for your glory alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.